the Millennial Express, ploughing ever onward through a northern winter. From station to station, bringing the dissident right to you. Welcome back to Millennial 2023. I'm now here with Adam and Hans from Myth of the 20th Century. Um, welcome. This, this is your first time on Millennial. So uh, welcome to the show. And Adam, would you introduce yourself and uh, uh, and, and, and the project and the channel? And then, then Hans will do the same. Well, welcome. Sure. Sure, thank you. Um, by the way, excellent job on the uh, introduction animation. I was listening to one of your prior streams, and did you make that uh, yourself uh, on your computer, or was that some yes. sort of AI? Or no, no, no. It's uh, an antiquated three D software called Bryce. <laughs> it's it's very Thomas the Tank Engine and uh, uh, very very British in my mind. So I, I like the design. So very nice. But uh, yeah, I'm Adam. And my co-host uh, today is uh, Hans. We have a show called Myth of the 20th Century. And what are we about? Uh, well, we're American, first of all, and we talk about primarily historical topics from the 20th century, as the name might imply. Uh, what makes us, I guess, a little bit different is that we do primarily historical topics as opposed to current events. And I will say that a lot of our shows are a little bit more technical than perhaps some of the other shows out there. Uh, I did a little bit of um, an analysis of actually our top shows just to try to address this question somewhat uh, more accurately. And we've had some, uh, some great guests as well, but our top shows typically revolve around uh, geopolitical subjects and historical, you can call it revisionist, hidden history subjects that involve possibly myths that we were all taught that were not actually um, accurate to the, the truth. And so we, we try to go into topics that are a little bit harder to understand if you've just, just got a primary school textbook education. So our top show is actually um, a show called Icebreaker, who started the Second World War. Uh, it, was, it was a deep dive into the Suvorov thesis, uh, examining what, uh, what was driving Hitler and Stalin during that time, and was the Operation Barbarossa a preemptive attack uh, that was actually staving off an invasion force from the Soviet Union? That was basically the the Suvorov thesis, and we had um, we had we had a we had a good guest on to talk about that. We've also talked to uh, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson about uh, Russia itself. Uh, we've spoken to Z-Man, uh, talking about financialization of the economy. Uh, we, we've we've gone into you know whole whole range of subjects uh, involving you know the historical, the political, the military, as well as the technical. Uh, Hans and I are somewhat um, technical by uh, by trade, and so we talk about computers, uh, machine tools, goofy things like that, uh, the automotive industry, the steel industry, uh, as well as the political. But I think that's sort of what sets us apart, and it's also a roundtable, and so 
one of the, uh, the origins of the show actually was that we all kind of found each other during that sort of 2015, 2016 era where Nigel Farage and uh, Donald Trump were sort of making waves politically. And a lot of people online were discovering this opportunity to discuss how they felt for a long time, as opposed to, um, you know, keeping it private that we could speak a little bit more publicly, at least on the internet. And so we found each other and we realized that there are a lot of these books and subjects that, you know, people were not really delving into uh, with enough rigor. And so we wanted to create this system where each of us would be responsible for a book once a month. And then we would just share that with each other on a weekly basis. And if there's four of us, you know, you can do that once a week. So that was our, our pace at the beginning. And we, we've slowed down since then because it's sounds like you know, a good we, system. It's a good system to, to learn. And uh, that was really where it started. And through doing that, we've met a lot of great people like yourself. And it's it's grown from there. But uh, we've been doing this for, gosh, almost eight years now. So that, that's the story. Wow. Um, Hans, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is uh, Hans. I uh, host on Myth of the 20th Century. I've been with the show for uh, five, six years now, the better part of a decade, at least at this point, it, it all blurs together at a certain stage. Yeah, and I got into a lot of this around the same time that uh, I think Adam did. And, um, you know, the original show uh, did not include me, actually, there was a there was an original cast. And uh, two or three of the people on that original cast are now no longer really around. And I was a, an early listener of the show. I caught the show on its like fourth or fifth episode. And um, I just reached out to Adam uh, at the time and things are a bit smaller and offered to come on and talk about uh, a specific subject we still <laughs> actually never talked about, which was uh, JSOC, which is a special forces branch of the United States, which is kind of littered in controversy. And it's definitely one of those hidden history subjects that... Um, became much more well explored during the Iraq war. And uh, we ended up doing a show on uh, just propaganda and then just kind of went from there. And then I became a recurring host after that and have been with the group ever since. And I think I, I, uh, I mentioned to you what was before the show, but uh, I used to listen to your YouTube show back when it was on YouTube and think we used to be on YouTube back in the day um for a long time and that was where our whole catalog was really based so i you know i used to have that millennial woe subscription and you know 2015 and 2016 and uh watched a lot of the videos and the run-up to the uh uk independence referendum and oh i remember that yeah. yes there was a huge a lot of energy i remember there being a lot of energy and uh it, it was it was a fun time that was that was for sure and um, I, and I also mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, it was, it was like a real introspection into life, you know, day-to-day -day life in, uh, in the UK and into Scotland. And I think that's part of why, you know, uh, I continue to do the show is that it's an opportunity to talk to a lot of very eclectic, unique people that you wouldn't normally talk to in day-to-day -day life. And it's uh, it forces you as part of that system that Adam mentioned forces you to actually examine topics you wouldn't normally want to spend time looking at or um, actually dive deeper on something you think you know well but you're not you know might not actually have as much knowledge as you really ought to 
And then it's an opportunity to spend, you know, two or three hours talking about it. I think we treat it as, you know, as though we're just sort of having a discussion amongst ourselves and uh, we kind of let the, let the audience, uh, let the audience in on it, like an old television uh, roundtable program. All right. Uh, that sounds very interesting indeed. I, um, I think the, the reason that I wanted to, well, the, the question that I wanted to put to you, obviously there are individual things, and you've found many of them, individual things about the, the previous century that are remembered inaccurately and now talked about inaccurately. Some of them very big, some of them fairly trivial. But I think a, another matter is the overall thing, the, the, the century, the 20th century as a whole, because of all these misconceptions, the overall thing is now remembered in a, inaccurately. Um, you could say to some extent that we're now heading, like with Zoomers, the, the young Gen Alpha, that they have very little historical awareness. Um, the millennial generations certainly uh, were fed on this notion of the 20th century as a century of democracy, of emancipation, of the dissolving of borders and boundaries. Uh, of freedom and consumerism and so on and and the doing away with old hierarchies uh, really the doing away with hierarchy <laughs> the abolishing of it um so what i would ask you is uh, because it is the title of your your channel the myth of the 20th century so adam in your own words and be as brief as as you can with this initial answer what is the myth of the 20th century that we won the second world war i think that's <laughs> the simplest way to put it right okay uh, and hans would you give a, a similar answer that we won the cold war oh right okay okay so let's let's take that uh, first, uh, Adam, we and I, I know that uh, it, I think we can discuss this without you know veering into hate speech territory. Just uh, of course, speak of it. Uh, it. I think it's perfectly possible. So just go into that, in because obviously boomers watching they they they'll have and obviously the types of boomers who watch my channel are, are going to be pretty based. <laughs> but <laughs> the idea is that of course we won the Second World War and. Hitler was vanquished and uh, had to commit suicide and he, he was humiliated and his ideology was uh, d totally discredited and the Germans were punished, but uh, but we were magnanimous in victory and we uh, helped them and, and so forth. So, so then how is it not true? And obviously, go into it. How did we not win the Second World War? Militarily, the, the Allies defeated the Axis. I mean, nobody disputes that. But what is to be gained from that? That is more debatable. And that victory, I think, is, is a lot more mythologized than what people realize. Uh, and I think your audience is very well aware of probably what I mean by that. But I think the simplest way to frame it is that sort of meme that goes around, I think, across the Atlantic in the various countries that fought on the Allied side is that picture of... Omaha Beach in Normandy in France, where these soldiers, whether they, I think that was the Americans, but I think uh, the, the British had 
uh, another beach, and they were both fighting to defeat the the Germans to quote unquote liberate Europe from obviously a political system and an ideology that was opposed to the Anglosphere. But when those soldiers returned home and very quickly started seeing their own home countries change in character, not just, you know, along the basis of just democracy, but it also became a, a sort of devolution of the whole social fabric by having a whole transformation of the borders and the demographics of their, their home country. I think that that meme of like, what did we fight for? And it's sort of that guy getting off that boat. And then 20, 30, 40 years later, he looks around at his own community and it's been demolished by open immigration, a decline in the social fabric and the, in the, in the morality of his own people. And for whatever reason we can get into that. But the fact is, the social fabric of the Anglosphere and the allies, quote unquote, was stronger before that war than after that war. And I think that's what we're taught the opposite. And I think that's what the biggest problem I think people today are sort of slowly waking up to realize is that this war was fought under perhaps false pretenses. And what did we really gain from it? And I think that's that's really the, the discussion that I'm trying to to put forward with that that statement I just made. Um, I'll show you, but before I ask Hans to chime in on this, I'll just show this meme that I think is one of the best memes ever. Um, here, here it is: uh, the the decline of Britain in just four generations. You can see it so clearly in this Remainer family, that's Breg, the anti-Brexit family. Uh, the naive war veteran, <laughs> we defeated my Nazis because reasons. Then the boomer liberal moron mother, and then her daughter, a millennial nihilist liberal race mixer, and then fourth, the mixed race child. And uh, I, I just think this is, I mean, it's depressing, obviously, but how much, he's right, that so much is contained, such a dreadful story is told by that photo. Um. And it does go through these each of these generations. There, uh, it, it's it, and it does start with, or at least a critical point is with that initial uh, war generation. We've got to defeat the Nazis, um, and then from there, yeah, your your kids will be liberals, your grandkids will be race mixers, and your great grandchildren will not look anything like you and will not really identify with you. And in that sense, your line will be ended. <laughs> four generations on from uh, from defeating the Nazis. I mean, it's a, as I say, it's grim, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but um, when we say that we didn't win the Second World War, I think that statement could be explained and justified by this photo. Um, Adam, would you have anything to say about that? No, I think I think that's, that's right. Um, I don't know what it's like in Britain, just as an American speaking, to see that transformation that quickly. Because one of the arguments that's made in America about it's a nation of immigrants and, you know, it's not just about the, the, the founding quote unquote stock of the United States, which was essentially uh, British. Uh, 
it it obviously did change not that uh slowly it was it was a rapid transformation and a rapid ascent of a country in terms of population i mean during the the 19th century at the point of the civil war where the united states fought itself almost to i mean it's never actually had a worse war than that war i mean world war ii was globally much much worse but we lost more lives in our civil war and we had a quarter of, of the population we did in the second world war and so just that that ascent was so quick and the argument that's always been made is that the united states is not a white quote-unquote country it's a it's a nation of white people black people other people and it's not inaccurate historically and because it, it's just grown so quickly and a lot of it had to do with immigration but when you go to a country like like britain it's a much older country and to see that change so quickly i don't know what that's like and i don't know what arguments are made by the people that are pushing that in the united kingdom that it's okay because it really isn't historically what has gone on it has in the united states but it's not so true well, in it, most well, of it's europe very, it's very strange how this happens because the arguments are made in america and heard over here so we're accustomed to them we accept that well the, the public accept them and then then the arguments are simply transposed over here. So now yeah, America was a nation of immigrants, but, but Britain is also a nation of immigrants. And then they'll, then retrospectively, they'll come up with reasons for that, that, that to evidence for that. So there's a, there was a black Roman once, yeah, this kind of nonsense. Um, so that, that's how it's done. Um, and then other things like, well, race is an illusion. Race doesn't actually, it's not real. Yeah, uh, this kind of stuff. It, it just but, um, seems more Orwellian than oh yeah, what we have because it really doesn't resonate with the facts. I mean, it it oh. sort of resonates where you know, as Americans, we can sort of we we may not agree with the conclusions, but we we can't really dispute the history as much. And when they start putting and and I, you know, I don't watch the BBC, but like every time I see a meme on Twitter where it's like, you know, the, the tutors, you know, and it's got some black guy. It, it's just, it's so jarring and, and bizarre. Oh, and I don't know how people Bridgerton, can... The Bridgerton stuff as well, where they're, they're sort of flaunting it. They're being as completely shameless and uh, outrageous about it. And yeah, it's, um, it's absurd. And I, I think most people who watch it, pro they, they probably know, at least the older ones know that this is not accurate, but... Uh, but it would have been nice if it were like this. It would have been nice if there had been black people in the aristocracy in the 18th century and <laughs> so forth. So it's nice to pretend. But then the younger ones watching it, I think, will increasingly think it, it was like that. Because that will be the norm. That that will be their image of 18th century Britain. So when they think of 18th century Britain or early 19th century, it will be that. It will be mixed race, multiracial. Uh, crazy, really uh, evil. Actually, what what's going on there? Um, I shouldn't say crazy because <laughs> it's it's anything but crazy. It's uh, there, there's very much thought out. Um, Woes. Do you remember the uh, the Cheddar Man controversy? Exactly. Yes. Now yeah. that's a big part of how they do yeah. it in Britain. They say that well, that we, I don't even know exactly what the claim is that because they're not saying that he was a modern day African. Uh, they're right, just saying yeah. that he had dark skin. <laughs> and, yeah, and the, the whole thing was, I, I, I remember, you know, looking back on it, 
that was probably the opening volley in at least in the british context of where they wanted to take this mm-hmm. because it sort of came out of nowhere it was basically refurbishing old genetic findings for some kind of theoretical skin pigmentation uh, analysis that he had these alleles and therefore he might have had this specific type of skin pigmentation it was very very bizarre that they you know they sort of dredged it up out of nowhere to make a, a a global controversy out of it and you know immediately within six months it was you know by the way if you oppose immigration into britain i'll have you know that eight thousand years ago a hunter gatherer might have had dark skin so your arguments are are not valid yeah therefore we should import infinity africa right precisely yeah i mean it's a, it's the kind of thing that appeals to midwits right. and and below um and it wasn't six months it didn't take six months it, it was <laughs> like within days they were using this as the argument well, it took, it took six months to get over to this side of the pod that they were right right, but right. I, I imagine yeah it was it was very rapid and it's been debunked numerous yes, numerous yes, times yeah. but all these years later they still bring it up shamelessly they, they've got no idea because they don't know that it's been debunked uh even the thing is even if it hadn't been debunked it would still be a stupid argument but they're not bright enough to realize that either so they just keep coming out with it um so yeah that's what happened with cheddar man uh but they're desperate. They, 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 they're desperate to find these examples of pre-1945 non-white people in Britain. So they're, they, they'll, they'll twist evidence. And, and the thing is, I'm sure that there were, uh, uh, very occasionally, I'm sure that there was the, the very odd non-white in Britain. Um, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't mean what they're claiming it means. You know, this reminds me of thing to see. So yeah, go on. I I had a, at some point in my actual formal education period, somebody tell me a a story. I think they were actually from maybe the, uh, the Eastern Bloc, the communist sort of world essentially. And they, they were well aware of obviously the failings of central planning, given that I was meeting them in a sort of a a free market economy at the time. and, And it was sort of still, uh, America ascendance, uh, end of history time. And so a lot of these guys that I would meet from Eastern Europe were were sort of very realistic about the failings of communism. But they, they would tell me these stories about how, to what lengths the the sort of the Kremlin and just the the Politburo and Goss plan and all these these sort of planning agencies would go to to try to scientifically prove the validity of communism, even though it was abjectly failing on the street, like people couldn't get enough food. I mean, they were, they were just, they were starving and, and it was at times and they, they knew it on a, on a, on a physical base level that something was wrong, but psychologically and mentally they were told otherwise. And there were these attempts at, at the central planning bureaus to try to find the the brightest youth of the next generation and recruit them into the propaganda arm, essentially, of, of the government. And in, in particular, because I, I have a I have a particular 
interest in economics and, and things like that. And, and I, it's part of why I chose my pseudonym, Adam Smith, but um, it, it struck me as this one example where there was a guy who was working at, at Gosplan, the central planning agency of the, the Soviet economy. And he was just left. He was one of the brightest people they had, had found uh, in, in his generation. And he was given this assignment where you need to solve mathematically the, the production problems we're having. And he, he completely failed despite his intellect. When you have a problem that's unsolvable, you can't really solve it. And it reminds me, that reminds me of sort of what's going on now with this, this force feeding of this narrative that doesn't compute with the physical reality of what we all know. We go out on the street and we see a certain demographic robbing stores and, and acting a certain way. And then we, we turn on our television and it's, it's completely the opposite. And so it's just that disconnect that is, is they're desperate to, to promote as hard as they can to try to either offset what is going on or to convince, convince the people at sort of certain levels where they need that consensus to make the, the plan go forward. It's, there's a massive disconnect and I don't know how sustainable it is, but it does remind me of another system that failed and it, it might foretell something. The, this whole thing is very interesting to me uh, about a fake reality being presented to people on the screen. And, and indeed, it must conflict with what they see in their own lives on the street uh, and also their instincts. I think that white women especially, um, well, white men as, as just as much, uh, perceive, uh, let's just say, a certain racial group as physically intimidating dangerous, less intelligent, um, more violent, more aggressive. Um, and I think white, white men perceive that. And, and I think white women perceive it as well and, and feel a certain revulsion as well. Um, and yet on TV, what they see is white women race mixing. Uh, you know, falling in love with some charming African, <laughs> and uh, it, it it must create a, well cognitive dissonance. It must create a confusion and stress. And uh, but but of course, women are very impressionable by the culture. They're very culturally led. So they they I think each individual white woman just must assume that she's wrong and she, she's racist as well. Of course, it's a dreadful thing to feel. Uh, but also it must be irrational because the TV is telling me that this is this is the right way. I should be falling in love with one of these these guys. So obviously I'm just mistaken and I've got to change. <laughs> so there's a pressure uh, to to just conform with the fi the fictitious reality. I, I've seen um, snippets of. Uh... BBC or they might even be BBC, but British produced history uh, series. And um, for some reason, Britain still actually produces a, quite a huge amount of historical content. Uh, a lot of Western countries, including the United States, have very much veered away from making historical content unless it revolves around the Second World War. Uh, but Britain still pumps out content, even going back to the to the Viking invasion period or to medieval England. And you'll see, you know, like a, like a rendition of an Arthurian legend and, a, you know, 
like Sir Lancelot as a black guy with a buzz cut. And you're just sort of like, what? You know, this is odd. This is very bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And you can just imagine the, as you said, the massive stress response that that must have on the average person's mind. They're seeing one thing on the street. They see something entirely different on the television. And most people, by their very nature, sort of trust their authority figures. It's sort of a hijacking of just general good citizenry. And they will trust that, okay, this must have been the reality. And perhaps my schooling was racist and uh, I was not told the accurate truth by my by the racist institutions that didn't want me to know that there were prominent black people in, in medieval England. And, you know, a year or two goes by and suddenly they're sort of ardent partisans, uh, whether they know it or not, on behalf of, you know, this agenda to promote um, more immigration, more integration, these kinds of things. I, I think there's... I think a lot of people are mentally ill now and it's just some kind of massive histamine response from the constant conflicting stresses that they have all day, every day. Um, it, it would, it would explain a lot of behavior if that's the case. I I think so. But I also think that a lot of people are not like normies are able to just switch off from it. They, it doesn't weigh on them in the way that it would weigh on us. Uh, they, they just accept it. They're far more malleable than, than than we are and i don't say that to you know big us up i think it's just a fact uh, because and you can see this by their um what's the word that their ambivalence you know when you try to interest them in something and, indifferent yeah indifference that's the word i was looking for yeah i was thinking listless uh ambivalent yeah but yeah indifference is the word i think a lot of people are just indifferent and that's how it's able to to permeate a, a um, friend of mine has an evolutionary explanation for that is that the majority of people throughout time would get their head cut off if they disobeyed the king and there was only a few people that actually were capable enough to actually impress the leader of the tribe so that they actually could get their crazy ideas put forward but most people are not that interesting and so if they had some deviant thought they would get punished and so i think the survival evolutionary explanation is that you go with the flow. You're, you're sort of the, uh, to use, I, do you have pine trees in, in the UK? I don't know. But the, the sort of North American analogy is you're the pine tree. You're very flexible as opposed to the oak tree, which is very stout. And if there's, there's a gust of wind, even though the, the oak wood is stronger, it'll break. And that's sort of what we are. You know, we're standing against the gusts. But there's problems with that because if you don't flex a little bit, you're going to snap. And so most people are kind of like pine trees yeah yeah I, I agree but it's also as you say it's a kind of survival thing it makes their existence easier because uh they just bend <laughs> they don't get broken <laughs> um but yeah so that's uh that's one aspect of how we how we lost world war ii is that we've ended up getting uh swamped in our own countries our own ancestral homelands with with foreigners uh, I also think it, it detached us from our histories in various ways. Actually, something that always disturbs me about the American uh, involvement in World War II is that a lot of those GIs would have been you know, genetically completely German. And 
they're yeah. brought brought over here to just slaughter their uh, you know genetic kin. Right. I mean, I mean, the head of the most... American military in Britain or in Eisenhower Europe, was Eisenhower, yeah. and he was uh, from a German family from Iowa or somewhere in the Midwest, Kansas, maybe something. Yeah, like that. and uh, yeah, and he was maybe only second or third generation at most. Um, you know, family still spoke some German when he was growing up. There, there was a. I think one of the the other realities around the Second World War and the myth that we that we and so maybe we should qualify we, but that Western countries wanted, and I think in particular, if you look at Britain and and France uh, as the supposed victors of of the Second World War, the the, the demographic collapse was just absolutely traumatizing. Uh, between the first and, and second world war both britain and france really the you know the core of western europe if you want to think of it uh lost millions of men tons of families permanently displaced and it permanently impacted their population growth those countries should have a far larger population had they stayed even at a modicum of that population growth from that time on it was a total demographic implosion to lose millions of people, uh, millions of men. Uh, in many cases, an entire family simply lost its only child. Yeah, And there, there's no real winning uh, between two massive wars where, you know, a huge number of men ranging from stonemasons to scientists are dying in the mud in trenches. It's a totally pointless endeavor. And it was a, it's a tremendous, uh, you know, it was a tremendous callback to something like the 30 years war in Europe, which was, um, traumatic, not from necessarily for a lot of Western Europeans who were somewhat spared massive casualty numbers. But if you look at the central Europeans in particular, Germans, uh, Czechs or time Bohemians, various Slavs, um, the, the absolute destruction in terms of their population numbers took a century or two to recover from. The Germans took nearly a century to recover from the population loss they suffered during the 30 years war. You multiply that by several factors and suddenly you have really the loss you know, that Britain and France suffered in Germany itself that, you know, in the, towards the downfall of the third Reich, um, at many times, it was specifically stated amongst the general staff of uh, of the German military, we are looking at another at another thirty years war, and they meant by that their casualty count was going to be so extreme, and they were going to suffer such tremendous agricultural loss, loss of territory, loss of you know industry, loss of towns, entire towns would be gone. Entire cities might not be functional. Now, they were using that as a historical anachronism at, in towards the end of World War II. They understood what they were looking at. And I think that's true just as much, you might not call them Westerners, it's just as true for Russians who are on sort of the other end of the, you know, the European sphere, who just absolutely insane casualties that resulted in probably the permanent dwarfing of the Russian population. Um, the Russians will just never recover from 
the losses they suffered in the Second World War. They, by no means, did not win in the long run. Um, I think it, it, it. There are some demographic studies that have shown that it permanently uh, left Russia as a second-rate power at best. They simply will never have that population back, um, and it was too critical of a moment to lose 20, 30 million people. Uh, just, just too devastating. So that that's one of the other great myths that in you know this idea that we as Westerners won. I think a huge chunk of the West died literally died fighting the war or was displaced as a result of the war. And what was the outcome? I mean, most European countries turned into, you know, subsidiaries of the United States, you know, sort of on American welfare for decades and have become kind of giant retirement communities. That doesn't mm. seem like a, a massive victory to me. And also, it's not just the numbers, but it's the, the types of people who, right. who yeah. are dying. I mean, it, and you mentioned the First World War. In the First World War, uh, the upper class were much more likely to die. Yes. And, and this, is one, this is, again, one of the myths of the 20th century is that the First World War was where the working class were just mown down while the upper class generals were sipping wine uh, 10 miles away in safety. Um, Completely untrue. Yeah, it, I believe the ratio was if it, if you were a private, if you're sort of working class, as it were, in in the trenches, you had a one in ten chance of dying. But if you were an officer, you had a four in ten chance of dying. So massively more like murderous to the upper classes, uh, which of course, and there's not a direct correlation with intelligence, but there's definitely a correlation. Uh, and also not just intelligence, but bravery, uh, skill, uh, cunning. Well, they uh, call it good breeding for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Resourcefulness, strength of character, resilience. Um, all of these qualities were lost in huge numbers in the yeah. First World War. Um, and again, I, I often wonder how different Britain would be had it not had this not happened, I mean, the twentieth century, Britain's twentieth century, I think, would have been radically different had we not been decimated demographically in that way. I think completely. Uh, I mean, even if the empire had been lost, which seemed to be probably a historical of, inevitability. Yeah, it was seemed to be on the way out, anyways, before the First World War. It might have not ended the way it did, but it seemed somewhat inevitable. The the costs of running the empire were so extreme, and I think there was there was a lot of consternation around whether or not it was all worth it anymore. And some territories were certainly worth holding on to; others could probably be forgotten. Um, but I'm remembering, um, I don't know what you think of him, but uh, Peter Hitchens, um, and I, probably others aren't very big fans of him, but he has spoken you know, at length about this, this phenomena in the First and Second World War for Britain, where, as I said, everyone from scientists to stonemasons were killed. The, the, the mass drafting of, of men into the military, regardless of their rank in society or what they did, was just so tremendously destructive to Britain. And he, you know, he and others postulated that Britain simply um, permanently ended itself as a, as, a, as a real force by engaging in these wars in the way that it did. And particularly in the First World War, which sort of set the stage for the Second, where Britain was really not a country suited for land war. 
and had never been and really did not have that level of acumen around fighting a, a war on land and hadn't in, in, in a long time. And this is their casualty count was so extreme because they simply did not understand what they were getting themselves into. And you know, there was an old quip that, you know, when it seemed like the First World War was going to break out, or if it might, the Germans joked that they would just send a police force to arrest the British army because it was so tiny. And the British land forces were, you know, not, not really suited for what was coming. They weren't suited for these massive artillery battles yet. They weren't suited for armored warfare. Um, they were sort of rapidly rushed into this scenario where they had to figure it out. But it took, you know, three, 400,000 deaths just to figure out how to fight the war. And then the wars, both of them would each drag on for years. And it, it was just so destructive to every level of British society. I, I think that the British would probably have wound up as a, you know, had those wars not occurred, would probably have wound up as, um, a, you know, the, the dominant force uh, in Western Europe would have, you know, eventually eclipsed the French. And it really would have been a permanent uh, sort of competition between Britain and Germany, but it would not have resulted in Britain becoming a sort of, you know, shadow country that just exists, you know, sort of on paper and is propped up by the United States. Uh, and, and is, and is slavish towards the United yes, States. Yes. Yeah. And is, and really, you know, just doesn't really do much anymore. I, you know, one of the other catastrophes from the, the second world war, um, for most of uh, here in the States, and I think this is true in, in Europe as well, is, uh, you know, the death of uh, the death of our industry. And in the United States, it was a, it was an immediate benefit to fight the war because it ultimately resulted in the immediate destruction of the European industries, which we benefited from for a few decades. But in constructing the world after World War, II, World War II and having to maintain it, we had to make a series of really terrible strategic decisions to eventually give up our industry, our economy, our way of life to maintain order, to maintain peace, to then go on and fight the next conflict. And now it's led to our current situation, which I think mirrors yours uh, and mirrors Western Europeans in general, and that, you know, these are sort of hollowed out countries with a litany of social problems, but really are lacking the, you know, the, um, the industrial and sort of innovative might that made them uh, what they were and able to even undertake those, those massive wars in the first place. Yeah, that, that's a thing where America really benefited from the war in the sense that it enabled America as we know it to come about America as the land of, opportunity and adventure and freedom uh, the 1950s everyone could own a buick and right. have a have a have a house in suburbia and uh, a job at the, the local plant the local factory and uh, and have three kids you know this wonderful mid century mid 20th century notion of america which i'm sure was quite real i don't think it's uh, i don't think it's fake I think it was the way it was for millions of, of people in America. Um, I think that's why the, the 50s is remembered as a sort of golden age by so many Americans. Um, it, it was real. It, it was, it, real. It was and, very and, real, yeah. 
I think there is a very popular myth now amongst the sort of postmodern left types that everyone was addicted to benzos and nobody was really happy. Yeah, the all housewives the men, were, were miserable. They're, yeah, they're all the men were secretly you know. gay or something. I mean, this is a very common, it seems like a post-rationalization of why they're yeah. currently miserable. Um, but it, it realistically was not that way <laughs> at all. It really, it, you know, it was a, it was a fantastic... Uh, crescendo to you know the rise of the United States starting in the 1870s. It was this sort of you know great finalizing moment from you know the sort of the 80 years that preceded it of slow pacing work to build up America and then finally enjoy it, enjoy you know not only this uh, fleeting idea of a victory. But to enjoy everything that we had, all, everybody had worked towards, everybody had worked towards this, towards, you know, finally succeeding in being, you know, the global power and finally enjoying the fruits of our labor, all the struggles in, in the early 20th century when America was really trying to break into the global stage. And you know, we had presidents like Roosevelt, and first Roosevelt, who really foresaw America as this potential power, but it was going to take a huge amount of effort and decades to achieve that. And it sort of finally accomplished all those visions. And uh, it was a great time. Yeah, I, this is one of those fake myths that's gone around that it was like miserable and everybody hated it. Uh, it's just not the case whatsoever. Literally, you know, if you, they're mostly dead now, but if you, when we were younger, we would still be able to speak to people that lived during that time. Literally nobody I've ever spoken to who lived during that time uh, said anything remotely like that, that it was terrible or miserable or everybody was on drugs. I, just... I mean, even Bill Maher admitted recently that when he grew up, he could go outside <laughs> and, and it was an idyllic yeah. time where he could sort of ride his bike and leave his bike, yeah. you know, in the middle of uh, the, the town park and then come back four hours later and it'd still be there. I mean, these sorts of things are not true anymore. And it goes to that sort of social fabric devolution that I think we've all seen in our countries. And maybe if I can offer sort of a bridge to what you had said, Hans, about the Cold War being sort of a false victory. I'm curious to hear what you think about that. But I think to, to bridge the end of the Second World War to the end of the Cold War, that was a that was a good 40 year stretch of a very important, very interesting period where the West and the East were really sort of at odds. And I think a lot of the decisions that were made at that time are still with us today in their, their ramifications. And globalization, a lot of people think of it as sort of a 90s, 2000s thing. But I think it, it actually has earlier roots during the Cold War. Uh, and I think as an example, we're talking about sort of the 1950s era of sort of General Motors, uh, everybody has an automobile and lives in a sort of suburban household kind of model as being spread and being very American. I think part of the way it was spread was actually the United States through becoming a reserve currency, Bretton Woods, et cetera, and then Bretton Woods breaking down. Um, it, it ultimately had to run a, a massive trade deficit with a lot of its allies, its political allies, uh, Germany and Japan in particular. And in order to bring these former enemies into the American side of the Cold War, 
and this is the sort of Peter's eye hand thesis, although he didn't really come up with it. He's just sort of the, the most recent notable uh, pusher of this notion. But I think there was sort of consensus in Washington uh, at the State Department and et cetera to allow the economic might that had sort of crushed uh you know, the, the, the opposition during the Second World War to the point where after the war, the United States had half the world's GDP. They sort of took that as sort of a given that that would never go away. And they were willing to sacrifice the marginal uh, to build up their former enemies to bring them into the, the side of the United States against the Soviet Union. And so the automotive industry in particular and the electronics industry in Japan and, and the automotive in both of Germany and Japan were, were allowed to export massive quantities of goods to the United States in order to give the politicians and the people in those countries incentives to fall in line to support the United States. I think that was, it was pretty obvious, I think, at this point that that was a decision because the, the trade barriers that had existed prior to the war had allowed actually a lot of the industry that won the war in the United States to actually grow. But it was sacrificed essentially for political gains uh, and the economy eventually started suffering in the seventies and eighties when Nixon had to abandon the gold standard because we were running just such huge trade deficits with these other countries. Uh, and then that only got worse uh, when China came onto the scene. And I think now things are starting to change where it's like, okay, we've gone so far, we've got $30 trillion in, in debt that, uh, you know, people are, are struggling to, uh, the, the, the treasury is having a hard time selling these bonds and our interest rates are actually going up again to the point where the U.S. federal budget is going to be consumed by debt payments, you know, as opposed to anything else, that there might be a shift back towards the more national uh, strategies that actually used to, to be in place prior to the Second World War. But um, I think those decisions are still in play today and a lot of our sort of free trade globalist open borders, it's all sort of connected to that. Um, it, it's, it, it's truly, it's, it was a truly profound time, the Cold War. Um, and I think, well, you know, we're still living in was, it. That was what I was going to get to, as to how, why is it a myth that we won the Cold War? But I guess, I guess the, the time to ask that question would not be 1945 or 1950, but uh, 1990. Um, so, Hans, would you like to start that? Why is it a myth that we lost, that, that we won the Cold War? Well, the first aspect of that is that uh, we didn't actually really defeat anybody. The enemy, so to speak, sort of just killed themselves. So I guess it's a, maybe a victory by proxy at best. We, you know, we didn't have to actually uh, invade the Warsaw Pact. Um, we didn't, you know, it, unlike World War II, there was at least a, a military, you know, defeat of the enemy. Um, that didn't really occur. You could make an argument that we, you know, sort of uh, bamboozled them into wrecking themselves by spending more than they could on military endeavors and they, they bankrupted themselves. And I think that might be part of it. But ultimately, the, the other side just died right in front of us we you know didn't ultimately have to really do much that's probably the first piece uh, the second piece is that you know one of the chief antagonists from the from the cold war uh 
arguably um, the the big elephant in the room is still around and hasn't gone anywhere, uh, and that would be the Chinese uh, have simply not only not disappeared the way that the Soviets did, uh, but somehow sort of quintupled in strength. Their numbers grew, their economy grew. Now we are sort of intermeshed with them from an economic standpoint. We are you know, dependent on them for investment. Um, we're dependent on them for ROI on our investments over there. It's extremely difficult to detangle ourselves from, you know, arguably one of our two main Cold War enemies. Uh, and this is a country that um, it seems very obvious will probably be fighting some kind of at least a low-level conflict with by the end of the decade. So what I would argue is that the, you know the Cold War probably really never ended. It uh, it seems to have just taken on a, a new life. Um, and of course, you know, if you dip into current events, the sort of successor state to our chief Cold War rival um, is is made a unreal comeback and is now probably the most aggressive uh, force in the European theater in you know 80 years. That is uh, that that doesn't seem like a, a tremendous victory to me. And speaking to Adam's point that you know we made tremendous tremendous sacrifices in the United States in order to win the Cold War, huge amounts of money, or I'm sorry, to maybe win the Cold War, huge amounts of money spent on endeavors that went nowhere, um, basically the creation of a very costly and corrupt um, military system that, you know, on paper really maybe costs us, you know, somewhere, I think it's $800 billion or something to that effect right now. More realistically, it's probably well into the trillion dollars a year. Um, we don't really, you know, it's pretty well known that we don't know the full accounting of what uh, you know, the military actually costs. Uh, more than likely, it is a it's trillion dollar expenditure, um, and it's a tremendous sink on the United States to have to maintain this. And we constructed a really haphazard um, sort of diplomatic complex around the world that has gotten us into a, you know a cavalcade of really stupid decisions since the Cold War. I guess it's maybe ended or maybe didn't end. In, in 1990. Um, the whole incident in the Balkans, I think, really epitomizes that and where the United States decided um, to basically create the roots of Muslim insurgency in Europe uh, in the 1990s by preventing uh, a certain country from removing the idea of a, of a you know, hardened Muslim insurgency within Europe. And that was, of course, the, the bombing of Serbia. Um, and immediately after that, the United States you know, entered into um, its own sort of um, Soviet-style death spiral in Afghanistan. And by you know, sort of believing that we had won the Cold War, that we were sort of military, militarily indefeatable and we couldn't really be moved and our enemies were these either these tin pot countries or they were they were jokes like 90s russia and they didn't really matter 
Um, we could kind of get away with anything. It was the same mentality that went into post-World War II America. You know, we have this huge economy, something like over 50% of the world GDP. There's no way we can we can blow this. There's no way we can ruin this. We can, you know, we can have a little slack here or there. We can make mistakes. We can experiment. And ultimately, it really hasn't gotten us anywhere. Um, you know, the country's worse off, uh, arguably, you know, after sort of... Uh, the Cold War experience and our two rivals from that era are still around and we're arguably closer to conflict with them now than we were then. Yeah. And you see, I thought that when you said this, that, that we didn't win the Cold War, I thought that you were alluding to uh, that we now live under a, uh, a, a that communism morphed into a different thing. And well, that's that's a that's a yeah that's another stream of thought that I think is totally valid to look at. And many other people have yeah. made that point. I don't, I wouldn't claim to to say that that's that's that, that's me being novel, but absolutely. I, I know, subscribe the, to that. The, the, you know, the, yeah, I mean, you know. left wing ideology is completely triumphant. They they never they never the get United the enemy States. within was harder yeah. to defeat than the enemy without. I mean the, the military defeat and the economic defeat of the Soviet Union was was more of a technical problem. It's like an engineering and scientific like issue, like where you're dealing with game theory and the Rand Corporation. But when you're dealing with people's thoughts and emotions, it's it's a much more complicated psychological issue. And especially when you've ceded control of your leading cultural institutions like the universities and the media to the left. Yeah. You 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 have a real real battle in front of you, uh, and I think the the Cold War uh, from personally I think it was worth fighting, but I think it was not won. <laughs> and I think we're still fighting it, uh, and I think the ideology of the left is still very strong. Yeah, I mean obviously it, de it depends what you mean by the left. It depends what you mean by even ideology, because uh, I, I, but I because it, it, it works in different ways. It permeates people's lives in different ways. Um, but I do think that, as as Hans just said, the the cultural Marxism as a, a way of, what we now call wokery, as a way of uh, directing society and, and even a moral framework. I mean, my God, you know, there, there are... <laughs> There are young women who think that, that this is moral, that this is that the only it is the only way to be a moral person is to believe that there are no genders, there are no races. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a boy in a dress is absolutely right, it's absolutely healthy. <laughs> there are people who think that's that's correct, that that is the only way to be a moral. Anything to, to disapprove of that in any way is to be immoral uh, and evil. Um, so it's absolutely true that this is victorious in Iraq, well, certainly in our intelligentsia, in, in the academy, in the, all of the universities. So it would, be it would be ridiculous to ignore that, you know, because we can talk about the military, uh, the army, uh, the economy, uh, all of that. But at the same time, this is going on in our universities. This is going on in our media. This is going on in our schools. So, as as you said, the enemy back home, the, the internal thing. And that goes back decades as well. It's not just to 1990. It, it was, I mean, I don't know, like Cambridge in the 30s, I think maybe the 20s as well, was full of communists. 
Um, like the United Cambridge, States, Cambridge Tom, Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The United States has a very long history. Of, oh, it's amazing uh, how of, much of it was was infiltrated by like actual yes, liberal, yeah. not not just cultural Marxists, <laughs> but yeah. actual communists mm -hmm. from throughout the whole thing. It's incredible. Yes, I mean we there was arguably um, so the United States had an experience with um, these sort of proto-Marxist types or socialist types, anarchists. Uh, one of them actually killed an American president at one point. Um, it was a he was Czech or Hungarian or some. So bizarre or something like yes that. yeah mckinley just you know uh, leo chagall or just some ridiculous like eastern european mark you know, anarchist or something um it, you know many times we had socialist bombings in the united states in the early 1910s and 20s there was an attempt to assassinate uh i believe the attorney general at, at one point of the united states in, in dc this is actually where J. Edgar Hoover sort of gets his his start as a young man. There's bombings in in Washington D.C. by early socialists. You know, there's been a tremendous amount of this kind of activity going back at least a hundred years now in the United States. We had a, an ardent communist uh, named Henry Henry Wallace. It was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vice president. Just to really utterly ridiculous slimy man um from somewhere in the midwest uh who was um you know basically paid by the soviet union pay i mean outright paid money on a monthly stipend um just a ridiculous figure uh who basically gave national secrets to the soviets you know uh, totally not only not only for money but out of pure ideology and this is a vice president you know at the time um if uh if uh, if Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, you know this man could have been could have been president. It was a truly kind of haunting possibility. So this has gone back a very long time in the United States, and now it's it's definitely morphed. You don't have sort of so, you know Soviet sympathizing you know working class patriot types anymore. Um, you have some that pretend to be. There's there's definitely a, a cultural trend in the United States. It leans towards that. Um, but the ideological uh, victory is really not there at all. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, the United States may be one to an extent in making consumerism the dominant global economic model, at least for now. But the cultural and, as you said, you know, the, the intelligentsia, the intellectual victory is simply not there. Uh, at uh, least within the United States, it's yeah, simply it, not there. It's, and it's the same in Britain. I mean, I, yeah. I think when you have college lecturers, professors, telling roomfuls of 18-year-olds that the country is evil. Right. And its history is evil. And its population are basically evil or stupid or naive for going along with this. Uh, you can't say that your country has been victorious. That That's the most... It's not even a Pyrrhic victory. It's it's simple defeat, um, because there's no way that the country can continue. And the idea now that it is that America is only a good country if it becomes a complete, like radically different country from the America of the past, whether right. America of 1900 or even the America of 1950, or even the America of 2000. Uh, or, or even the America of 2015, because even then, still plenty of historic, systemic, 
structural racism and so on. Right. So it's got to really change out of all recognition in order to be a good country and in order to be the America that we all want and deserve. <laughs> so it's got to be not America at all. So in, ju in just the same way, Britain, I mean, maybe we can keep, I don't know, scones and tea. Uh, the Sunday roast. Yeah, maybe the red phone boxes, but right, yeah. really nothing else. In every other way, it's got to be unrecognizable. So it's going to be a radically, well, not just radical, fundamentally, almost totally different country in order to be one that would align with the ideology of that, that is now ubiquitous in, in the academy. Uh, so... I don't know how you can say that we won. In, in that sense, we, I mean, we didn't win anything. You know, <laughs> the, the World War II was a complete failure. Uh, even if, we, if it was a military victory, it was a complete failure for us. And the same with the uh, the Cold War. Uh, how, how is the, really war, but, what is the historiography of the Cold War in Britain? How was how it viewed? Well, you know, I was born just a few years too late to really experience the Cold War in any real way. There are people just a few years older than me who can remember the mid-80s and the early 80s and genuinely being terrified about the prospect of nuclear war. Uh, there was a TV doc, a film made in 1984 called Threads that scared the shit out of so many people. Who, and they'll still say it now. They can remember watching it as a child or an adolescent, and being terrified. Um, and I've seen it, and it is a fantastic piece of uh, drama. Um, I would recommend everyone watch that. But um, Threads, 1984. But So so it was there, and, the, and it would have been in the, the schools. They would have talked about it. There would have been posters. There would have been billboards. It would have come up on TV. Uh, it would have been in the news. They'd have been worried about what... I mean, I do remember Gorbachev being on TV, and I remember his birthmark on his head, that I don't know what it's called, a port wine stain or something. Um, so I remember it in the most vague terms, but even by then it was, well, it was on the verge of, of being all over. Um, and I do remember the Berlin Wall coming down. I remember my dad saying to me, remember this, because it's important. And, and it was him and me in the TV room looking at the TV. <laughs> but that's like a very vague memory that I have. Um, so I can't, all of that to say that I can't really tell you how the Cold War felt or it was experienced by British people. But I do think there was genuine suspense, uh, fear, terror, uh, that it could become an actual war. Because the other thing is, I don't think anyone really knew what nuclear war would actually be like. Obviously, they'd seen photos from Hiroshima. Everyone knew about that. But everyone also knew that the, the bombs are massively more powerful than they were then. You know, this is 40 years later, 50 years later. So so God knows what they would do now, what, what, a, what a nuclear bomb would do to Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, it's, it's unimaginable, literally unimaginable for people. Um, so that's, that's the, the answer, really. I can't. I can't tell you how it was seen at the time. Retrospectively, it's all got wrapped up into the, um, the myth of America in the 20th century. And I don't mean myth in a, in a disparaging or an accurate way. I just mean the, the mythos of America. 
in the 20th century. So the atomic age, the American dream. Yeah. And I think that Britain, British people very much saw, saw it as America's fight and we are with America. We're, we're, we're supporting America, but it's America's beef with Russia. Hmm. Uh, I think that was how it was conceived because conceptualized. But again, I might be wrong about that because I was just a bit too young. Uh, to, to be aware of it, really. Um, I, I think I think retrospectively, it's seen as a lucky escape. Like it could have it could have become a war. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and then there were tensions even in the eighties, even in the mid eighties. There was a, like I remember something. I don't know what it was, but something happened in the mid eighties that raised the stakes again, and uh, and then suddenly it all ended. Uh, just out of nowhere, and I, 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 apparently no one predicted it, no one at all. Um, but it, it just happened. So yeah, I wish I could give you a good answer, but I can't. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah. I think that that is actually one of the one of the enduring myths that the, the United nobody saw that the Soviet Union would collapse. Plenty of people knew that the Soviet Union would collapse. There's a there's a great argument to be made that um, at least for the second half of what we think of as the Cold War period, the United States was sort of operating it on autopilot, knowing full well that there's no way these guys pose a serious threat. They have this big nuclear arsenal. We're really not sure what they can do with it. We don't even know if they have enough fuel to get those rockets in the air, but outside of you know the you know, screaming 20 million man army of eastern europeans coming into western europe they're really not that much of a threat to us and there's no way that they didn't see the unfolding happening in in the 80s there was a there was a kind of a new look at the soviet union because it was there was a notion that we have to try and terminate this thing um you know it's, it's going on too long it's costing us a bunch of money uh, how do we sort of solve this problem? Because there's bigger things that we would like to do. Um, clearly, the Middle East was on the block for a while, and they needed to get the Soviets out of the way for good to finally move in on it. And there were a series of studies that were commissioned in the early 80s. I think it was under the Reagan administration that really sort of uh, pushed this. Documenting the Soviet economy. They collected every piece of intelligence that they had in the Soviet economy, all the human sources they had within the Soviet Union, within the Warsaw Pact, collected everything they possibly could and commissioned a series of studies that showed that the Soviet economy was you know, smaller than uh, most U.S. states individually. It was, it was a tiny economy. It, uh, it had a litany of social problems. By then, it was pretty well known. The Soviets actually had a huge drug problem in the 80s. They had a, a massive problem with just sort of general lawlessness in many, sort of starting with the rural regions and then in some cities. There's a real like breakdown of, you know, just day-to-day -day law and order. And the, the, the idea of the hardcore authoritarian Soviet state was really um, window dressing that really the Soviet Union had very little control or that the government had very little control of what was going on 
within the Soviet hierarchy or within the Soviet system. They really couldn't understand it. And, and in the 80s, there was a sort of, uh, I think it might have been in 82, when there was a sort of quiet coup and Brezhnev was gotten rid of by um, and Dropov and a few of these other characters, including Gorbachev. And these guys were intelligence officers through and through. And they were the only ones that could really fully understand what was wrong with the system. Um, and they knew how dire it was. And the only way they thought they could preserve it was to, you know, for the intelligence services to now not only run the country sort of, you know, with puppet strings, but to actually run the country. So it'd be like if the director of the CIA came out tomorrow and deposed the American president and actually ran the country and the CIA at the same time. Um, and everybody would think this is like a totally normal thing. Uh, this is basically how the Soviets were being run towards the end. And the United States was totally aware of what was going on within the Soviet Union. I think it's, it's this big myth that, I think that the CIA themselves have propagated about their their own. They have this tendency to create this sort of false historiography of themselves for one reason or another that they didn't see it coming. Um, there's no way that they didn't didn't see it coming. It's just simply not possible, especially when they began doing all those uh, economic studies of the Soviet Union. They resurrected the SDI program and knew full well that if they could basically tricked the Soviets into just spending a slightly bit more amount of money than they were already spending on their huge military, that they would immediately go bankrupt. If I can try to make an analogy, um, I think this is sort of like looking at a company that is running billions of dollars in losses every year and marveling at the fact that their stock price keeps going up. And yes, you could be, you could be fundamentally correct in your assessment of the the fundamental problems inherent in this company. But one of the tricky things about investing is the timing is always not something you can control. And I think that could be an analogy with what Hans is talking about is that, yes, the sort of understanding that the Soviet system, while capable of producing tens upon thousands of T-90 tanks, is abjectly failing at the electronics industry for some reason we can get into maybe why but the fact is the fact that they they just suck at actually keeping up economically and eventually that is probably going to cause their decline but we don't quite know when it's going to happen and I, I i do think there is some truth to the fact that they couldn't predict that you know the christmas 1991 the Yeltsin or Gorbachev, I can't remember, gets up and basically announces the dissolution of the Soviet Union. There may have been hints at that, but I don't think they could have nailed that timing too well. But I think you're right that they probably had an understanding that there were some fundamental issues with this system. And as part of that, they they targeted their strategy towards essentially outspending them to the point where the Soviets couldn't keep up. And then yeah. things essentially started hurting the consumer side of things where they couldn't even stock the shelves anymore because they were they were spending all their money trying to build you know, missiles and and they couldn't produce bread and i think uh, eventually it caught up with them but they i don't think they they could have said exactly when they, they there's no way they yeah they didn't predict the date but there has been this enduring myth and i, I don't know where it comes from but it has definitely i've noticed that it's spread everywhere that 
nobody predicted it that it was it was an intelligence failure that nobody saw the end coming and that's just simply not not the case whatsoever i you have to keep in mind that towards the end um you know it was it was a very kind of rapidly moving situation there was something that nobody really predicted which was actually a very bizarre move by i think it was eric honecker was the guy that the the old guy that ran the 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 ddr at the end and he was drunk or something to that effect and gave a very weird press conference where he they asked him is the wall going to come down and he said something like maybe <laughs> and uh, they asked him when and he said uh, right now and he was like intoxicated and uh then basically everyone ran towards the wall and all of a sudden the east german border guards had no idea what to do didn't want to shoot yeah. you know thirty thousand people and um it was over so nobody predicted yeah. that you know that eric honecker would arguably be the downfall of communism in europe by effectively drunkenly telling people that actually the wall is now gone even though it wasn't gone yet nobody saw that coming and i think that that was really you have to keep in mind too that uh, the soviets themselves knew it was coming to an end it didn't exactly surprise them either in the in the final days the soviet leadership under gorbachev was basically trying to inform warsaw pact members that it was over that uh, they would no longer be able to supply um troops to these countries they would no longer be able to supply police they could no longer adequately supply intelligence the common turn was no longer functioning so the united states probably noticed that suddenly there's a mass movement of russian troops back to the soviet union where they were formerly you know occupying half of europe even in 87 and 88 that was already underway that basically the soviet leadership um told Everyone from Honecker um, to the the carrot to Ceausescu to everyone else that uh, they couldn't keep this up, and that sooner or later, you know, the the communist parties of Eastern Europe would probably have some kind of internal problem, and to a T, they all did within a year or two of of the Soviets trying to warn them. So I, I I've always taken issue with this idea. Again, I don't know where it's come from. I, I honestly think this is like. One of these instances where you know the the intelligence agency in the united states has created a it, it's sort of acting dumb or playing dumb being coy about you know what its real capabilities were at the time and has tried to create this mythology that actually it's not as you know capable as it as it might be and uh that it didn't foresee the, you know the doom of the soviet union well i mean that's uh it's obviously important but it's uh not the but what I wanted to focus on because I think it's it's more interesting to talk about how this affected us in the yeah. West. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, I, I don't mean to be. Uh, I, I probably do have some Russian listeners, and uh, I don't mean to be dismissive. It's just uh, it's not core to to what we're talking about. Um, so, is there anything else that you would say about this that, that it's a lie that we won the Cold War. I, I really the, I, I, you see, what, what I, I'll just say something here that I think the idea there is Western capitalism won out over communism, and uh, I there, see there are all sorts of ways in which you can say that that's not true either because 
we don't really live. I mean, it, corporatocracy rules today, but not capitalism as such. Um, Adam, would you like to take that thread? Yeah, I, I think I think you're noticing something that is commented and observed quite frequently these days that it's sort of like the Davos crowd is actually in charge. And what is that? That That's sort of a grouping of politicians and multinational corporate leaders coordinating in sort of a very loose, not, uh, not centrally planned, but sort of like a, a central coordinating committee where they, they sort of hang out and they, they, they send signals to each other as to what, you know, ESG scores are going to be next year and, and things like that. And I think that you could describe that as sort of a multinational corporatist system as opposed to a, a capitalist one where it's truly a free market where consumers are making the ultimate decisions as to the success and failure of corporations. Um, it's never one or the other. I don't think, I think there's always going to be an interplay between money and power and you're, you're not going to have a libertarian uh, world where there, there's absolutely no government involvement or the opposite where it's, it's going to be private citizens have absolutely no influence over the government. I think, I think we have just a, a complex system today that is very multinational and extremely complicated, but is it capitalist? It's more capitalist than what the Soviets were doing. That's for sure. But is it sort of Adam Smith tier? No. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I had a few other thoughts on on a slightly different tangent. But but I'm happy to go into that more if if, if you think it's worth proceeding with. Well, I'll go over to Hans first and uh, ask you the same question. Would you say that capitalism? Because again, the, this mythology here that Western capitalism won out over communism. It, it, would you say that that's not that that's been borne out? Oh yeah, I mean that on a nominal level, that's just imminently true. Um, I, I think people even today would struggle to understand, uh, you know, the communist economic systems that existed in during that time. Uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't make sense. You have to actually like go look at academic literature to really understand them. Or to talk to people that actually lived under these systems, they would, you know, they would simply be alien. Um, they were so totally different in how they conceived of, you know, everything from price theory to um, distribution to uh, the concept of wholesaling. I mean, every single element of the economic system that, that the Soviet Union promoted, or that that was, you know, uh, that various communist nations attempted to implement. Uh, would be just so weird today. It wouldn't make any sense. We, we did a pretty good show, I think, on the topic yeah. uh, based on a book called uh, Red Plenty. And the, the show was called Soviet Cybernetics. And it was essentially the, the confluence of the technocratic and the economic. And yeah. how, do you, how do you actually algorithmically solve the economy was essentially what they were trying to do. And that's why it was that's why they failed because it, it's a, it's it's an incredibly intractable problem. I mean, they one of the things actually prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union that in the eighties when the cybernetic sort of uh, before AI winter set in, if, if you're familiar uh, woes, but it, it's basically that the cybernetic term became very popular in the eighties and this concept of using computers 
and machinery to calculate the answer became very appealing with the sort of rise of the personal computer and, and a lot of things like that. And there was a hope in the Soviet Union that computers could actually overcome the limitations of, frankly, just the mathematical scaling problem of coming up with decisions for an entire country. Uh, it, it's it's sort of a uh, it's an exponentially complicated problem. The more people you have involved, the exponentially more complex it gets. And today, the Chinese are actually contemplating this because with the advances in GPU clusters and artificial intelligence, they think they actually can do this stuff now. Now that we've got uh, NVIDIA GPUs running these insane uh, trillions teraflop levels of, of output per second, they think they can actually solve this with a computer. Um, I don't think that's possible just because the problem is set up wrong is that it's machine learning is used, it's backwards looking and it, it looks at historical patterns to try to solve what the future will be. And it's in a way, it's a very Asian approach to things where they kind of look at history and they, the family and it's like, we're, we're going to uphold and, and be responsible to the family. But they're not innovative in the sense that they, they're so constrained by the history that they don't come up with what's new. And I think if you want to be competitive, what, what did Darwin say? It's not the survival of the strongest, it's the survival of the most adaptable. And I think that actually will be perhaps one of the saving graces of the West is that we have more of an adaptive, flexible system. But yeah, so to go ahead. the, yeah, the, the American system polarized <laughs> the, the, the communist system so much so that none of the global, you know, they had an entire rival set of global institutions that literally do not exist anymore. Uh, I mean, in, entirely gone, completely gone, uh, erased. Nothing remains. Um, you know, Russia is a major player in the international commodities markets that the United States basically created whole cloth. So the, the notion that that communism at all won from an economic standpoint that that's definitely true. That uh, that the United States and American style capitalism defeated it. But I would say that American style capitalism doesn't really exist as it existed then or was maybe conceived of then doesn't exist anymore here. And I would say that if many of the vestiges of it have ended up working against us. So here, here's a, a small story to kind of highlight this point. There's a, I don't know if you're familiar with the region of New England, but uh, New England yes. is, is, is a historical region really encompassing uh, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island. And uh, this is a coastal region for the most part, especially Connecticut, Massachusetts, and, and Rhode Island. And there's been a, a along with Maine, uh, so I guess you could consider the part of New England as well. Um, there's been, there's a tremendous fishing industry there. Um, and it's been there for hundreds of years. I mean, you know, some of these uh, these fishing villages are probably filled with people who have lived there. You know, their families have lived there since the early 17th century. And they have, um, they're, they're English and Scottish to this day. I mean, you go up to those places, I'm sure you'd recognize many surnames, probably even some faces 
um, they they're very much have been there for a long time doing working in the fishing industry. And most of these private fishing fleets um, were slowly consolidated. They used to be sort of family run businesses. Maybe a family owns two or three ships at best. Maybe you have a big family or a slightly powerful family in Portsmouth, Maine that owns five ships or six ships historically. Now um, they've all been sort of uh, uh, amalgamated into a few smaller fishing fleets in the area with quota systems imposed by the government, uh, huge environmental regulations, um, and having to constantly fend off foreign fishing fleets from Canada and other places. And it turns out um, there was a, an article about a year or two ago that most of these fishing fleets are actually owned by uh, foreign investment funds. There's a foreign a private equity fund, I think based out of the Netherlands, that owns the majority of the fishing fleets that are currently operating along the U.S. East Coast. So in that sense, you know, yes, the, the, the American system utterly defeated and humiliated the, you know, the communist system so much that no vestiges of it exist anymore. But it is ultimately morphed into something that's very, you know, sort of self-inflicting. And it probably doesn't really resemble anything American in the sense that it's, it's not in line with the historic American economic model. And in many cases now, there are a lot of Americans or, who are basically working for non-Americans. This is a rising trend. We have a huge amount of sort of foreign style capitalism that has somehow worked its way into the United States. And to some extent, the Chinese are you know, involved in that as well. So I, I would say that if, if it did win, it's one of those sort of, you know, fleeting victories uh, that you might not even call a victory. Yes, we defeated the other side, but we've inflicted this just massive grievous blow to ourselves. And, you know, the system's rotting from within. Now there's really no room to be a, a private upstart fisherman in, in New England, which is a region that, you know, used to produce men like that for 350 years, 360 years. Yeah, and, and this is throughout the whole West. I mean, uh, and especially after COVID, uh, oh, so yeah. many small businesses just shutting down, they're gone. And now it's that another whole sector is owned by big business, by uh, by corporations. Yeah. So it, it's just everywhere. It, it, it's suffocating. It's stifling innovation and enterprise among ordinary people. And again, you have to wonder, is that a good society? <laughs> Are you familiar with um, the antitrust movement or the trust busting in the United States? That no, was... I haven't heard of that. Um, Standard uh, Oil, yeah, uh, Microsoft so, more recently. Yeah, in uh, well, it was it was practiced a bit in Europe. Um, it seemed yes, to be with Google in particular. very petty. Yeah. <laughs> against American companies. Well, the French yeah. search engine was uh, in the charge. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called, but yeah, they yeah. were jealous of Google, uh, basically. There was uh, So there was this same effect. So in the, the United States was ha had, like, has had many sort of small golden eras. And we had a, a very kind of interesting golden era starting in the late 1870s all the way up through the 1890s. And it was this period when Probably many of the things you associate with America were sort of uh, first conceived and, and uh, became widespread. Railroads, telegraphs, oil, and, you know, uh, sort of the beginning of global finance. 
were all happening in this period in the in the United States, and uh, a few companies basically came to dominate everything, or family trusts would dominate everything. Um, and this is where we have you know some of the names that are very probably synonymous with America, like uh, Morgan, Rockefeller, Carnegie. Uh, who is the uh, names familiar to us all? Yes, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt. would have been the railroads. So uh, these were basically targets uh, in many ways because they were stifling innovation. Um, J.P. Morgan effectively consolidated the American railroad industry to his liking. He basically crafted the um, you know the American railroad industry to work perfectly for him. And it ended up, you know, overcharging many consumers in the United States. It became very challenging to innovate. And, you know, you, you had all of the resources locked up in these massive companies and it became inefficient. Not, you know, you can sort of ignore a lot of the, the labor complaint stuff to some extent because this was, you know, the beginning of that sort of proto-socialist era. And I think you can safely ignore those people for the most part. But it was stifling innovation and it was challenging to do new things. And these large trusts and businesses held such massive sway over the day-to-day -day life in the United States. So there was a very popular movement um, came to be known as trust busting. And there was a, it was the Sherman antitrust act or something. I think that's yes. what it was called where it became law that the United States could regulate large businesses and force them to break up and to sell off assets if, uh, if they were deemed to have a monopoly in a certain sector. And this, you know, actually had a sort of positive effect, for example, for American energy and that standard oil was broken up. And we, you know, out of that grew the, the American petroleum industry into this, you know, juggernaut, whatever you think of it, it was a tremendous source of wealth generation for Americans. And part of that was due to well, the fact- One of the ironies was that Rockefeller yeah. went from something like $300 million in net, net worth prior to the breakup of Standard Oil to something like close to a billion by the time yes. uh, he, he was on his deathbed after they broke up the companies because he was a stockholder in all the subsidiaries that were the successors to the yeah. Standard Oil Trust. Yeah, they created more. They basically created more wealth by doing this, and even even the the wealthy guys sort of made out pretty well from it. Um, so, you know, in the United States now, there's this there's it's come up again this topic of especially after COVID, um, you know, when it looked like most American businesses were going to consolidate. What yeah. happened to trust busting? I think Wal Walmazon is just <laughs> eating eating the world. <laughs> I think that there's there's a big discussion around it here now, uh, and that it is stifling. Um, you know, we have, for example, in the defense contracting industry, uh, so basically the weapons makers. Um, it used to be in the in the early '90s, something like forty something companies were the primary defense contractors. Now it's six, and we we actually did a show specifically on this topic, talking talking about two of those companies, which were Lockheed and general dynamics, general dynamics and how they basically absorbed the entirety of the, the defense contracting business under themselves. I think Lockheed bought at least half of those companies. Well, there, and, there's a few other players, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, but I mean, the, the, those are, those are general dynamics and Lockheed are exclusively military and they're yes. probably one of, two of the strongest in, in that, in that realm. 
and everything you know costs more it seems like things are less innovative yeah you know there's a tendency to get lost in bureaucracy i i think that it, it there, you're right that there is a stifling effect i don't know if there was a similar movement in britain to sort of break up large family trusts or or large businesses or anything like that but it, not, not that i know of. just the thatcher era was sort of like against the sort of state-owned industries to my knowledge yeah. though other yeah than and that. she was actually pro big business i mean she yeah, right. did numerous things to help big large corporations and it was it was called well monetarism it was the <laughs> but, um, and reaganomics it was very closely related to reaganomics yes yes yeah. yes yeah that's the only thing really i, I had um, a yeah. perhaps a closing thought if, if we have any time left um yeah the, the the sort of the antitrust movement w was a very interesting time in American history because I think it has a lot of parallels to what's going on today. It was coming after a time of, they called it the Gilded Era, where these truly wealthy people, I mean, in terms of the share of GDP of what Rockefeller alone controlled, there has never been anyone in history who was that powerful outside of maybe... Uh, the Middle East or something, but at least in American history, there's never been somebody who had so much wealth. And so there was a lot of frustration in the people in seeing that, that that huge wealth divide existed. And I think today, Occupy Wall Street was one of the things that actually was sort of a rekindling of that notion after the financial crisis, people were really pissed off about all these bailouts going to the richest 1% of the, the world. And a lot of people theorized that what happened after that was a lot of this woke stuff started getting pushed on purpose to distract people from the economic inequalities. And I think there's a lot of merit to that argument because really a lot of the conversation has turned away from economics and more towards the social to things that are really kind of absurd uh, on the surface. But, you know, when you have billionaires funding the media constantly pushing this agenda it's sort of hard to break free from that unless you're sort of unique like you know the, those of us on this call and uh, i'm looking at a, a, a little graphic that i found that showed the faces of the left-wing activists who were who were murdered basically in 2023 the most recent and famous one being this guy named ryan carson who was like out clubbing with his girlfriend and then he got, oh, yes. got mugged and then killed by this black guy and um you know the story but there's a lot of these people and if you read their biographies anti-racist anarchist professional social justice bureaucratic activist for the city of ann arbor michigan uh anti-racist anarchist racial equity activist i mean they're all the they're all this you know woke stuff why does this exist well i would argue that some of their grievances maybe you know on some level make some sense to somebody out there but i think the majority of this is a lot of these people just don't have a purpose in their life and they frankly they can't compete in the capitalist order because their skills are pretty limited uh they, they know how to blog basically but what do you do with these people and i think certain billionaires like george soros would rather have these people working on this like anti-racism stuff especially you know with the ethnic origins of george soros they'd rather have these disaffected people targeting another group uh rather than those that actually have a lot of the wealth today uh, and I think that's something we need to figure out because, and, and I think part of it is giving, frankly, 
it's sort of like what Bismarck realized when communism was on the rise. Karl Marx was writing in Germany about like the capitalist problem, the industrialization of Germany. What do we do? Well, Bismarck realized that you need to give the workers a little bit more than what they're getting. Otherwise, they're going to become communist. And I think I think probably this push recently against globalization is, I think, a recognition at the upper levels that we need to give the workers something. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to go woke and they're going to go crazy and they're going to burn everything down. So it's it's complicated. There's lots of groups out there, but I think if we're going to figure this out, and we being not us, but the people that actually have the power, they're they're going to realize, and I think they are starting to realize that a lot of the people out there that have the potential to burn the cities down are going to need something to do that's somewhat more productive than just uh, becoming an anti-racist. And I think bringing jobs back to the working class, I think is going to be part of the strategy that we're going to see more and more. That actually links with a super chat that's come in. Uh, could you comment on the rise of woke following Occupy Wall Street? And I think this is actually yeah. what you've just said actually kind of answers that question. Yeah. Um, uh, Hans, would you have anything to say about that? What, on the rise of woke after Occupy? There are some pretty good uh, analyses that have been done on that. And I think that uh, some of it masks woke, you know, the origin of woke itself and the origin of Occupy Wall Street. And, and it's based on this idea that Occupy Wall Street was this, you know, awesome homegrown movement of just normal people who, you know, were mad at, you know, bankers or whatever. And uh, that it was hijacked by, you know, transsexual Mexicans or something like that. You know, th this is like, this is the historiography of, of Occupy Wall Street that's popular. But if you, you know, if you're around in America during that time, at least in my experience, well, Occupy Wall Street started with those people. I mean, it was, it was kind of run by those people from the get-go. So I think it actually is a perfect, um, you know, sort of starting point for a lot of this. And it wasn't because it was hijacked or anything or that, uh, or that, you know, the notion that it, you know, it had good intentions. I think it started out as this very bizarre misplaced energy over, you know, what happened in 08 and that it really was the beginning of the end and people that are otherwise sort of rightly ignored in society for being, um, you know, meant, you know, regarded as mentally ill or, or just not really being clear headed were given this, um, given this platform because the country was so traumatized after, after the financial crisis that anybody was willing to listen to any ideas. You have to remember that in response to 08, the United States as a country in very large numbers uh, elected a bisexual former communist um, black man as president. Um, and this is, you know, it's it's not even a conspiracy that <laughs> Barack Obama was bisexual or that he was a, a communist at one point or that he's black. Um, the, you know, the country was just simply mentally broken after 08. It was just so bad. And I think that Occupy Wall Street really was the beginning of the end and suddenly, you know, you fast forward, I don't know, 12, 13 years later from that, 
And if there was a plan, you know, amongst the American financial scene to sort of inculcate the social justice cause into uh, into their into their sphere, I don't know if there if it was exactly planned out like that, but it certainly has taken root. And I think that they found a very clever way to potentially shift any and if anything like that happens again they'll have you know totally paralyzed that aspect of the population and could probably even use them as a sort of battering ram for some kind of preferential regulation or something like that um but unfortunately you know occupy wall street there's there's a very funny little piece of history here is that it was actually a most people don't know this it was a, a canadian thing uh, at its core. It was not a, an organic American phenomenon It's at, when it began. It was, uh, there's, a, there's a group called Adbusters or Ad, Ad, Adbusters uh, that is a sort of a, like a pressure group that is run out of Canada. Um, they were actually running huge protests against Trump in DC in, uh, in 2020. Uh, and this is a Canadian foreign political group that um, actually started the whole Occupy movement. Um, and I think if people... I, I read somewhere that they in, in turn were uh, partly funded by Soros. But I, I would not be shocked. I don't know <laughs> if it's true. But I, I, I it's it's hard to say because, you know, I think in the United States, I don't know how it's viewed over there or how people outside of America view Soros. But the reality is that um, he's a lot like Bill Gates and that he has money everywhere uh, into every possible cause so and that's just the nature of his um his view yeah but that, bill gates has about 10 times as yes as, but as much you know, money it's pretty much everywhere so any almost any issue or any protest group um you know he'll he will be there also he's an opportunist um and that he you know soros is very much an opportunist so if he sees some kind of cause that is popular he will move cash and people into it very rapidly in the early phases to you know use it for his own ends and to recruit others because you have to remember how at least i don't know how it works now because he's probably you know he's basically um he's basically dead but no he, he's giving it to alex he, okay son. so yeah. so it, it'll be defunct in five years that kid's a moron but the the open society foundation the way it worked is that it had basically a bunch of like you know um unpaid workers who sort of did its bidding on its behalf and he had to find a place to recruit these people so what place better to recruit sort of disaffected weirdos to do your you know whatever political thing you want to do any given day um than something like an occupy wall street protest so you have to put money into it to make that happen so i don't know if he's if he helped finance it at the beginning or if his money came in later um it ultimately doesn't matter because his goal is that at least at the time was the same was to basically just find bodies for running some kind of other operation i see okay well let's not go too far into that because uh time is uh as is, is passing so um all right well this has been a very interesting conversation so uh thank you both for appearing um I started by asking what is the the myth. Like if if you were to boil it down to one thing, uh, or to summarize it in one way, I don't think that's really possible. Uh, Adam said that it's a myth that we won the Second World War. 
Hans said it's a myth that we won the Cold War. Um, I would also add to that it's a myth that anybody won the First World War, hmm. except possibly the bankers. I'm not not even sure about that. But uh, I think, that, yeah, the, the, the summary is that the 20th century is, we remember it wrongly in all sorts of ways. And I think that part of the way forward is going to be untangling all of that, untangling the, the lies, finding out the facts, and untangling the, the ways that the lies formed as well. So, um, yeah, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of fertile territory here. So, um, yeah, okay. Well, I'll be back in a few minutes with Endeavour. That'll be the final stream for tonight. But in the meantime, uh, Adam and Hans, uh, thank you for appearing on Millennial 2023. Yeah, thank you for having us. And thank you for doing this. I, I, I can only imagine how much work and prep goes into this in addition to actually talking to us for a month, basically, back to back. So hats off to you and and i hope you keep it up because you're doing a valuable service thank you very much and uh, the, the same to you, the two of you as well all right bye-bye for now we hope you're enjoying millennial the journey must continue but it needs your help bidding on this year's nft ends on the 30th it's your chance to own this one-of-a-kind commemorative piece Lovingly hand-coded by Millennial Woes himself. Millennial amounts to three months of work for the vile vlogger. Please help him continue. Until next time, enjoy the journey and spread the word.